Christopher C. King is a Grammy-winning producer, musicologist, as well as prominent 78 RPM collector. He has been profiled in the New York Times Magazine and the Washington Post, and has written for the Paris Review, the Oxford American, and Airmail News. Christopher was born and raised in Southwest Virginia and studied philosophy at Radford University. Over the course of the last 10 years, he has researched the tradition of Greek demotica songs, especially in Epiros. In 2018, W.W. Norton published his book, Lament from Epiros, an odyssey into Europe's oldest surviving folk music to wide critical acclaim. His book was named one of the top 10 books of 2018 by the Wall Street Journal, and Christopher has presented his work at the New York Public Library, the Gennadion Library of Athens, as well as the Athens Conservatoire, among other venues. He currently splits his time between the United States and Greece. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sirthos podcast. We are back today with another guest, um, someone who's a little bit different, not a dancer, and not somebody who uh, considers himself to be A-plus on the dancing floor, but somebody who is very important to Greek folk dance history. So, Chris, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I mean, also, you should have added, I'm also not Greek. I don't know how many Greek, I don't know how many Greek dance experts you have on here that aren't Greek, but I'm one of them and I'm not an expert. Um, now, a little bit of my background is that for the last uh, 30 odd years, um, I've spent sort of uh, celebrating, archiving, remastering and producing collections of folk music. Uh, mainly from the 78 RPM format and mainly from the United States. Um, I, I won a Grammy. Oh, shit, I can't remember when. It, I think it was 2001. No, 2002, I got a Grammy. And I've been nominated five times since then. Uh, I am the editor of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections Journal, which is a scholarly journal dedicated to... Um, examining obsolete and antiquated audio uh, audio sources that preserve our musical history. And so most of my life has been spent obsessing about uh, our musical past. That's, That's quite amazing. amazing. <laughs> Jinx. Right, exactly. And thank you for um, spending time with two of us novice podcasters, I would say pretty decent level Greek dancers. So we're thrilled to have you on the show tonight. First question first, why Epiros? What, what was it? What pulled you there and kept you there too? Well, it was an accident. Like most things are accidents. So, um, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, I decided to take a, a, a vacation to, uh, Constantinople to Istanbul with my then wife and my current daughter. That doesn't sound right, but it's true. <laughs> um, and we had gone there and um, I was kind of like trying to get off the wagon because, you know, record collecting, collecting 78s is kind of, it, it's an addiction. It's just like alcoholism or any, any other vice or presumed vice. And I was trying to cool my heels. And so when I get to Istanbul, I did not want to even think about a 78, but of course, being there after a day, I started to inquire if there was any place in the whole city that sold old 78s. And sure enough, on the other side of the Bosphorus uh, in Katakoy, uh, there was a, a, uh, a place which I refer to in the book as um, a, an alley of gramophones. And that's really what it was. It was a long street full of gramophones and gramophone recordings, uh, many of which dated back to the 1890s. Um, and in one shop, uh, I happened to find a stack of about eight or 10 78s 
that had not been picked over. They had not been found by other collectors. They had just come in, in fact. And this stack of discs uh, was pretty much split evenly between the music of Greek Epiros and the music of Albanian Epiros. Uh, there were recordings by Kitsos Harisiadis and also uh, Riza Babili. And they were only like a doll, uh, one Turkish lira, which was like a dollar and a quarter. So I bought, I bought everything. And then for three weeks, I sweated waiting to listen to these records, not being able to because I had no phonograph player until I get back to America. And when I cleaned them and played them, the music grabbed me so violently, so seductively, so irresistibly that I had to not only get more, but also I had to understand the sort of uh, purposefulness of this music because when I, what I heard in these recordings was indeed a design. This music was meant to do something, to do something with, not just for dancing, but to do something with. And so that sort of law that sort of launched my um, trip into the rabbit hole of music of dance. That's amazing, and you know, it's I can't even imagine. Like, I can understand being a collector and want wanting to go around if you're in a new city and see if you can find whatever you might be collecting, right? And people might be able to connect to that if they're, they collect, you know, artwork from different areas that they travel to or, you know, whatever. Um, but stumbling upon an entire alley that just had stores of these, and you so well described this in your book that I almost felt like I was there. Like I could see like the dusty paths and all these different stores. And it's just like, that is a little bit beyond just happenstance that, that, place happened to be there when you you know were there obviously it was faded it was faded yeah. or, or you could even say it was destiny i i, I think that, i think ultimately everything is written inside of ourselves from the moment that we're born and that that moment of discovery was certainly written for me yeah i'm curious a little bit so you hear these 78s um they're in a language that is not familiar to you um was what was the I mean, what do you hear in that music when, when you didn't necessarily understand the words? I mean, did it evoke emotions and like, could you grasp kind of the meaning of the songs just by the way? I'm curious how that impacted you a little bit more. Well, I, I mean, 99.9% .9 of all songs is about love, either the joy of it or the failures of it. So that's not too hard to figure out. But no, when, when I was listening to them, uh, I would say that the, the emotional turbulence that it sparked was really due to the fact that most of the material was in the pentatonic scale, a five-note scale, which its corollary in America is the blues scale. It's what you hear in, in old Mississippi blues music, uh, field hollers, old, very old gospel music. It all utilizes the pentatonic scale. And so what it really did do was – it evoked the same feelings that I had for my favorite American folk music, but in a tongue that I could not understand. So from this point, how did you, how did this evolve into kind of the next um, steps? I mean, this obviously put you on a path towards the music of Epidos. What, what came after this discovery? Well, I, I wanted to find out what, it, what, what this music was. I had no idea what it was. I knew it was in the Albanian language and in the Greek language, but I didn't know much more than that. So I set about to contact discographers and collectors who, you know, they, they, they indicated that this music comes from the Northwestern part of Greece uh, and the Southwestern part of Albania, 
But beyond that, they didn't have much to offer. And so when I, I happened to be in a bookstore in downtown Charlottesville, once again, this, this is one of those things that doesn't happen by chance because mm-hmm. it was a used bookstore. And there was a book on the shelf about Iparos and the Ionian Islands by a, a, a British writer named Jim Potts. Well, of course, I bought the book and, and within a couple of hours, I had already read three quarters of it. And I decided to write to this Jim Potts. And uh, one thing led to another. And he, uh, we met because he happened to be visiting and his daughter here in America who, who works, who worked in Washington, D.C. And they invited us to um, to visit them in the village of Vitsa, which is where their house is. Uh, which is in Epirus, to actually witness this music firsthand. Um, when you travel yep. to Epirus, do you? What is your first memory of that? Uh, how 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 staggering the environment is that mm. that there there are, there are not enough words in our small vocabularies to describe the immensity of the mountains, the. The, the the paucity of life at certain levels, the fecundity of life at other levels, the terrain, the way that the the way the canyons stretch, and that you can't you can't even see the other side of the canyon. How large everything is! Everything is outsized. It's like uh, it's almost like being dropped into uh, the prehistoric life forms of of the world and seeing megafauna. That's how it felt to me. Yeah. From someone who isn't, I've never been there. And, you know, we talked about this when we were um, chit-chatting a, a little bit ago. Um, those visuals, your visuals of, you know, driving on the road and, um, you know, the wife of your friend kind of like telling him to hold on and, you know, both hands on the wheel or whatever it might have been in the situation just brought these memories to me um, of, you know, different trips in Greece. And I, I just can't even imagine how Epidos looks other than sort of seeing it through your book. And um, after reading that section, I was like, I have to go there. I have to. It's it's so wild to me that that place exists in Greece. Um, and nobody I'm knows about it. Mind. So yeah. few people know about uh, this place that to me is so intense and so immense. Yeah. It's yeah, crazy because we've, we've talked about it a number of times with yeah, dance instructors and they've kind of chrono- um, they've they've talked about how when they discovered Ipiros, but not just, you know, oh, it's there, but really started to understand the, the immense um, power behind the song, the music, the dance, the meanings that they they have and, and the emotions they evoke. It's it, it was crazy how how many dance instructors said that, you know, Ipiros never really meant much to them. And then when they finally understood that, it became one of their treasured regions to really dive into more and just to teach their kids because there's just so much, there's so much more than what meets the eye. It truly is a, a hidden gem. And it's, it's awesome to see that, you know, people are really shining a light on it and trying to, you know, keep those traditions alive and honor them and all that. So um, I'm curious though. So what, how did, how did hearing the music of Ipiros live compare to hearing it when you heard it for the first time on the, the, the records? Oh, well, that, that was also shocking. I mean, it was shocking to my senses. And I write about this in the book that, you know, when you when you listen to a 78, it is a predictable, repeatable three minutes, give or take in so many seconds. 
it doesn't change. But in a live setting, of course, the musicians, they're playing without a time restriction. You know, they can play the same song for 15, 20 minutes and add to it any number of variations and any number of improvised lyrics. It can go on and on. Um, that I anticipated because that's that's a, there's a corollary with that in the United States, which is, you know, live old time music can also land, last much longer than a recording. The big, big difference, the thing that shocked my system was the amplification. You know, uh, going to a Paniyiri and hearing a melody, a song that I was very familiar with, but being played through uh, pretty cheap and very, very, very loud amplification equipment. And uh, I, I have to say, I am not a fan of amplification. I think it's I think it's an abomination. It's a it's a plague upon it's a pox mm-hmm. upon humanity that we have to have amplified music when music played naturally is is just fine. Um, so that was the biggest shock was that the context in which the music was being played live that it had to be amplified to such a degree. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you remember? So you were at Abanagiri the first time you heard it live. Uh, well, no, I had heard it. I had heard it live from a, a Roma musician named Yanis uh, Haldupas, mm-hmm. who uh, Jim Potts introduced me to, and who actually I, I later up ended up uh, recording Yanis Haldupas for some field recording sessions that were issued by JSP Records. That was much more informal. We went to his house, and uh, and he just sort of sat down and he played some melodies for us. Um, and then I actually did go to a Panayiri with uh, with with uh, with Giannis. However, the, the first time that I heard the music in a full live setting was indeed at a Panayiri. I, I mean, I write about it in the book where I mm-hmm. um, I drink some. Well, I drank a lot of Cipro, which didn't affect me so bad until I actually added a whiskey to it, <laughs> and then it was over. And so I ended up removing uh, most of the skin on the left side of my body, trying to crawl back to the house where I was staying. <laughs> um, thankfully, the, the ha- second half of this podcast is going to be actually Chris uh, reading an excerpt, excerpt from the book that involves Cipro. So, um, oh, no, it's not going to involve Cipro. Well, maybe it will, a little bit. Of course, everything. <laughs> a little bit, right? A little bit. Um, I think a few of us have probably similar stories we may not want to admit that you know when you're when you're dancing you don't feel the stuff as much as when you stop and then you know the world is no longer moving with you it's spinning around you so (laughs) i think we've we've been in uh, similar situations you know we spend a lot of type a lot of time on this podcast talking um about the connection between music and dance um and it's interesting to hear people's thoughts on that uh some people you know, believe that like uh, the elders in a village possess the history of the dances. Some people believe it's the musicians that you go to if you want to know, you know, who can I go watch for like an expert opinion on how to do a dance or who can show me how this dance has been done historically. Um, How do you see that connection? What is that connection for you? And and I think, you know, where we kind of came up with this question is being somebody who is totally, you know, you were not raised in the dance culture right and then you get to this place you're hearing the music and then you know you see people dancing to the same instruments or you know rhythms and intonations can you talk about that a little bit well i mean just as far as i as i can see it uh uh 
music and dance in a vernacular sense, not in a religious sense, but music and dance, it's inseparable. You can't really pull them apart because one is intended for the other. It's like, uh, it's like the relationship between amorous love and erotic love. They, they, they go together. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't really exist separately. You can't have them separately. They have to go together, but being there in the villages, uh, and being pretty attentive to how the dances were being played, you, you all your your mind always gravitates to the lead dancer because the lead dancer, the one who calls a dance, they're the one who is kind of like possessed by or inspired by the music, and so therefore, not only do they have to lead the rest of the dancers with the correct movements, but more importantly, they need to express with uh, with Kefi. Um, this sort of unique elation, this way of, of improvising the steps. They still have to be on the same beat, of course, mm-hmm. but their body enters into contortions and in movements, which indicates that they themselves are being possessed by the music. There's a reciprocity going on because, of course, the lead clarinet player is watching. He's a good a good clarinet player is watching the lead dancer so that that, that so that he can he can make the improvisations, the, the variations on the rhythm meet that dancer. And of course the deafy player, the percussionist, he is tapping out without any uh, error, the, the rhythm so that all the rest mm-hmm. of the dancers can keep that rhythm with the lead dancer. So it's organic. It's symbiotic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting. Um, a few people that we've spoken to when they reflect on like their favorite style of Greek dance, right? Um, they use the word heavy when they talk about epirotica. They're like, it has to be like, and this is, this, I can think of two people off the top of our head. Um, one is not a Greek and um, one is actually a, a Greek Cypriot who her favorite region is epiros and because it's that heaviness, but it has to be like that really gritty driven music. Um, and I also think what you said about the leader of the line being possessed by the music reflects authenticity. Um, And I think we kind of, at times as teachers, you can kind of struggle to get your students to understand the authenticity that makes a dance a dance. Um, But, you know, having them think about like that the music takes you over. I think that truly happens when you're dancing with live music and it could just be like a clarinet and a drum. Or it doesn't have to be. No, I, I absolutely agree. I, I cannot, I mean, I don't want to diss anybody's profession or hobby, but I cannot imagine teaching dance without a live musicians, you know, mm-hmm. and I know it's difficult being in the U S mm-hmm. it, it still can be done. I mean, there are, there are good musicians in, the, in America that can play that. Vasilis uh, Costas being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you need to have that, that changing interplay between music and dancer, dancer and music. To really have that magic. Yeah, it really, it really is that relationship and that conversation back and forth that takes you over absolutely. And yeah. I mean, being able to master that from an educational standpoint to be able to make that connection for your students is invaluable. But it's it's also something that it has to organically happen for them. You can't you can't teach that emotion. You can't teach that connection. You can only show them the path towards it. So um, certainly seeing is believing. I mean, when you experience that, when you, when you're, you know, in those bunny ED settings, when you're in 
the mountains and you see this joy come out of people when the music's playing and it really just, you know, it's that out of body experience. I feel like that's the aha moment that I, I, I mean, for me, I pray to God that everybody gets the experience in their life. Oh, yeah, it's it, best high in the world or mm-hmm. it's the second best high in the world. <laughs> but, but I, I do know that the one thing I look forward to more than anything else when I'm uh, in Vitsa uh, is the last night of the three nights of Panayiri where you dance, um, you dance, they start at late, like 10 o'clock, but you dance nonstop until the sun comes up. That to me is the elixir because, you know, your body at that point, your body uh, has undergone the stress of two days of dancing. <laughs> Hopefully it's been fortified with Suvlakia and Kokoritsi yeah. and Siparo. And you're able to sort of sustain yourself all through night, all through the night. And that's really when things get very interesting with your body because the chemistry, the chemistry changes, the chemical reactions change. Yes. And you, you keep on dancing when you probably, you know, normally would have stopped 36 hours ago or something, something crazy like that. Um, Chris, when we first kind of, when we first talked to sort of set up this podcast, um, we talked a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on things like dance and music. Um, we obviously, none of us on this podcast have been to Greece since the pandemic, um, as many people who are listening, how do you see that impact? Do you think it's going to change things? God, I hope not. I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, I I know many of the listeners and most Greeks, you know, they've had 40, 50, 60 years of experiences directly, the the panayiri, the sort of closeness, the the brotherly and sisterly love that goes on, the the closeness, the proximity, the holding of hands, the sharing of food, the sharing of alcohol, all, all these things, those go back countless generations hundreds probably even thousands of years this is it's kind of almost like a like an epigenetic thing with mm-hmm. greeks that this is this is part of their culture maybe even the part of their biology uh i i can't i can't even consider that when i go to greece this summer which i hope to god that i can <laughs> that uh that things will have changed i just can't i i i, I don't know how i'll be able to deal with people sitting at a distance or people, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, particularly when we're talking about central Zagori, which is where I, I, where, where I was, uh, the dances there are, are done in, in big concentric circles. I know in different parts of Greece, there are different ways of dancing, some solo, some not holding hands, some holding the shoulders, some holding the waist. As you go to the Peloponnese, uh, it's little circles of dancers. And even when you're up in um, Grevina and parts of Macedonia, it breaks into even like family units or friend units. But in central Zagori, according to the Sar Katsans that I really love to talk to, uh, you know, their people dance together. They dance in one big circle. And the Sar Katsan would then follow by saying anything else is nonsense. Mm-hmm. And so, and so it just, to me, I I can't even imagine that lack of proximity, that lack of closeness. I just can't imagine it. Just, I I, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. I, I echo that sentiment. Um, and I think, you know, the Greeks have prevailed and I think also, um, they're not afraid of closeness. They're not afraid of togetherness. Um, you know, it's, 
we all grew up like sharing the same cup at a at a panayiri. You know, you go around yeah. and one per- person is pouring, you know, the homemade wine, and you just share the same cup. That's what you do. It's disrespectful to not do that, yeah. right? Um, so I I agree with you. I, I think it's not going to change, and I, I hope and pray for that as well because it's so much of what we're counting on. I, I think we're all holding on to getting that back and to experiencing that um, after a year of not being able to do that. Yeah. And, and, and it does raise to me a very important, I hate to, I hate to use the word, but it's a true word, a political question. I mean, Greece, ever since Greece entered the EU, has been pressured by parts of the EU, by the EU, to assimilate with the EU, to become more EU-ness, to become mm-hmm. more European. And the thing is, is that, you know, yeah, Greece, Greece is in territorially, it's in Europe, but fundamentally it is, it is unique. It is not European. It is Greek. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pressures to like, you know, try to prohibit the, the, the making of Kokorizzi, uh, which failed. And this, and the now current prohibitions against people making Cipro on their own, uh, the, 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 all these things, they're coming from the EU. And I, I really hope to God that the Greek people sort of stand up and are self-confident enough to say, well, but this is what makes us, us. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you haven't traveled home from Greece with a plastic water bottle filled with Cipro, you know, you, you haven't lived. So, um, that's, yeah, I normally carry four or five of them in my, yeah, I don't, I, I leave my clothing behind. Right. Exactly. And that stuff, it just gets better with age. <laughs> um, Chris, this has been so fantastic and, and we truly have a treat for everybody listening. Um, so we are going to mute our microphone so nobody hears us and we're going to, um, listen to a reading from your book. Okay which is fantastic. We'll also put a link to where people can order the book in the show notes. Um, I highly recommend it. It's okay. Really and, and, I'll, and also I can provide you with some links, I reckon, for, for music uh, collections that I've done of the, the music of Iparos from 78s as well. That would be amazing. That would be amazing for our listeners. Thank you. Okay. Um, so where I'm going to read now, uh, this is the this is the first night of the Panayiri of my first uh, experience dancing in uh, in Vitsa, and I had already had um, uh, some Cipro, but I had been I had been afraid to dance, uh, even to dance in the circle with others, uh, and so um, I had befriended a lady named Evikita. And uh, this is the section I'm going to read to you uh, about Evie introducing me to dancing. You should dance the Samantakas, said Evie Kita. When Jim and Demetrius left me to my own devices in the village square, Evie decided to take me under her wing and teach me some of the dance steps. I regarded Evie with her dark flowing hair, all embracing smile and perfect English as a friend. Knowing that three bottles of Tsiporo and five minutes of dance lessons would likely not result in a mastery of the Samantakas, I still wanted to get within the dance. In this song, all the unseen forces of eprotic music come into play. With this piece, perhaps more than any other, motifs and embellishments such as downward glissando, ostinato, and the weaving of various makimi and rhythms are in full bloom. To request a song in Iperus requires both that you tip the musicians 
and that you know how to dance that particular piece. In my altered state, drunken, I thought that a causal connection could exist. Laying 30 euros at the feet of the musicians would result in a conveyance of all necessary choreographic skills. This was not the case. But it was also not so bad. Not being synchronized with the dance made me aware of other things going on in the music. The steps for Samantakis are smooth, light. Within the line of dancers, you simply hold hands and move like clockwork. Pivoting on your left foot, you lift your right foot to the right for two full steps. Resting on your right foot, you swing your left foot directly behind the heel of the right and then lilt the left foot in front of the right foot, your left toe pointed down. You glide to the right and repeat. All of this while holding hands at elbow level with your neighbors. But the lead dancer, in this case, me, must conjure something akin to levitation. My compartment dissolved, as did the strict uniformity of my steps, since my whole body must express the melody. I raise my right arm and hand above the line of my shoulder while loosely matching the forward movement of my feet to the tapping of the defi. Occasionally, I release Evie's hand so that I can spin slowly, feeling the music on my face. I dance around the musician with gradually increasing abandon. And then they wanted to play into me. And I wanted to be played into. Most Westerners are distanced from live music by a stage, a row of seats, a phalanx of bodyguards. Being played into is therefore an alien concept. At least those who play acoustic instruments have a semblance, a point of reference to this phenomenon. But here's what happens. The skilled clarinetist, in this case, Thomas Hadianis, has been watching every dancer in the circle as they pass, particularly me, the lead dancer during this song. Then his eyes meet mine. He's reading me. What results is some sort of reciprocal loop, an exchange between his instrument and my psyche. Tomas departs the circle of musicians and moves towards me with his clarinet hovering close to my head like a snake descending on its prey. A woman next to me has wrapped a cotton towel around her arm and then around my hand. I am now bound to her. The clarinet is at my ear, the bell at the end almost touching me. There was a sonic barrier between what the musicians were playing and the amplified sounds heard by everyone else. I've passed through this threshold. When Tomas plays into my ear, there is no mediation, only tone. Because we cannot see music, we presume that it is something other than a physical force. We're not aware that sound is a collection of things negotiating with other things in the universe, brushing up against one another. The voice of the clarinet rides the minute dust particles between my ear and the end of the instrument. Sound rides on the back of unseen things, finding a way in. Everything unwinds itself and goes white. I did not pass out. I felt as if I had passed over. The dancer behind me cradled my arm, wrapped in a white towel as if it were in swaddling clothes. She prevented me from slipping to the hard cobblestones below. I walked from the circle of dancers with the sound of the edoni, the nightingale, faintly echoing in my ears. I left something behind as I walked away from the music. 
Several of my newfound friends from Vitsa congratulated me. Issei Mangas, a warm praise of my bravado. I walked towards their table with something rare, almost fathomable. I needed a drink. And this was my undoing. So incredible. It's such a moving. Uh, I know. It makes it me, me the tears. <laughs> it makes me thirsty. <laughs> Do either one of you guys have any really good Cipro you can send down to Virginia? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to restock. <laughs> I know, seriously. Although, you know, somebody listening here might. So if you do, send us an email and we'll get you in touch with Chris. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I would be eternally grateful for a, a small pop bottle of Cipro. All right. Oh, that, goodness. That reading just, it really like, it grabs at all the emotions that you feel. And it's, it's so. I mean, it's always so hard to put to words the way dance and music makes you feel. Um, but the, I mean, this book, I mean, this just this small excerpt from it, but this book does such a phenomenal way. The, the way you use your words to describe um, what music and dance does, it's just, it's phenomenal. So, Thank you. Thank you. Chris, thank you so much for... Um being on the show. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to the podcast, our guest in episode one um, recommended that we reach out to Chris and we did. And um, he, you were, you're amazing. So thank you for like, I keep on joking that this is like cold calling Greek style to get people on the show. Um, but thank you for um, agreeing, you know, to meet with us and, and to um, also provide that reading. Cause I think it's just so awesome to hear the author read his text. It's so, you know, you can read that countless times and every single time you have a different image. And when you just read it, then I was like, Ooh, you know, I, was, I like had to make myself not cry. So <laughs> I can appreciate that. Um, so everyone, we will put into the show notes, um, resources from Chris and also where you can pick up his book. Um, and thank you again, Chris, for being here today. Uh, we hope that you get to Greece this summer. Because um, we're saying we're going. Misotaki said Greece is open, what, May 14th or something like that? So Yeah, yeah. Well, and so on May 15th, I might be on that plane. <laughs> right? Let us know if you fly through Dulles. <laughs> we'll come and say hi. <laughs> uh, I will. Let's see. Yeah, actually, I will be going through Dulles because <clears throat> I can't stand LaGuardia. I can't stand the other airports. Yeah, JFK is a disaster. Even yeah. though they redid it, it's still not good. <laughs> Dulles is much more comfortable. Um, but anyway, thanks everyone so much for listening and uh, we will be back with more Sirtos next week.